Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. Mr. Marlowe? Uh, yes. Mr. Winslow Wong is freaking out. He's trying to make trouble for Mr. Philip Marlowe. What Wong doesn't know is that Marlowe's a tough guy to trouble. The word is you are a cool cat. Well, the word is wrong. I go all to pieces over nothing. James Garner is Marlowe, and Marlowe comes on strong. Car. Beep, beep. You're something else, Philip Marlowe. Now, you just start at the top. Uh, let it flow, you know what I mean? Don't try to sort it out. You want me to make a statement? That's the story, Marlowe. It's to be voluntary and without coercion? No rules, huh? I won't lie to you, Lieutenant. All right, Marlowe. Not yet, Lieutenant. If I didn't have enough trouble, I gotta worry about you, too. Maybe. Suppressing information, concealing evidence. No. Yeah. Your license is dead as of now. Marlowe's the man who asks the question. Does your mother know what you do for a living? Marlowe's the man who's asked to give the answers. How'd you know about that, too? I'm a trained detective. Lousy private buzz. What can I buy you with? What's your price? How much? A hundred a day and expenses. Are you hard to occupy? But don't forget you're a lady. Do nice, fleshy, uncomplicated girls turn you on? Are you just a little gay, huh? What makes you so wonderful? I'm a trained detective. Welcome to Marlowe country. It's a nice place to visit, but you wouldn't want to live there. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the movie Marlowe from 1969. The studio was MGM. The release date was October 22nd, 1969. The running time, 96 minutes, and it was rated PG. Roger Ebert at the time gave it two and a half out of four stars. Here's his review. One of the charms of Raymond Chandler's detective novels is you can't figure out exactly what's going on in them. Philip Marlowe is just pouring himself a drink from the office bottle when a chick knocks on the outer door. And within two chapters, he's involved with a bizarre cast of maybe two dozen characters, all of whom seem to know each other through relatives in Kansas or a friend in the pen. Perhaps The Long Goodbye is the most complex Chandler plot of all. It ends with at least three sets of explanations, and a double reverse is thrown in after everything seems to be settled. You long for the simplicity of The Lady in the Lake, where the wrong drowned woman only seems to be associated with the kingpin of a gambling boat. Rather than bother checking up on his solutions, I'm generally inclined to trust Chandler, If he had been a lesser writer, his plots would matter more. But his books depend mostly on the texture and style of life in Los Angeles and on the cynical intelligence of Philip Marlowe. That's probably why Marlowe, the latest movie to be based on a Chandler book, is not very satisfactory. Even though director Paul Bogart shot on location, he has not quite captured the gritty quality of Chandler's L.A. And James Garner, the latest Marlowe after Robert Montgomery, Dick Powell, and Humphrey Bogart, is a little too inclined to play for the light ride James Bond style laughs. Bogey was probably the best Marlowe of all, and that was just as well because The Big Sleep from 1946 needed someone to distract from the plot. My contention is that the movie version of The Big Sleep never does explain what everyone was up to, but we don't notice because of Bogart and Lauren Bacall. In Marlowe, however, the loose ends are more distracting. I'd be willing to bet that's because the film was recklessly edited to make it shorter. Anyone familiar with the plot of Chandler's The Little Sister, on which Marlowe is based, can spot the holes. Marlowe becomes enjoyable only on a basic level. It's fun to watch the action sequences, especially when the karate expert goes over the edge. And that's the end of Ebert's review. So the draw to this film for me were a few things. One, I'm a big fan of James Garner, so more often than not, I'm willing to watch pretty much with him in it. 
Two, I love detective stories and film noir. And lastly, I really enjoy Raymond Chandler adaptations and the character of Philip Marlowe. So while I enjoy the film a bit more than Ebert did, I do agree that this wouldn't be the first Philip Marlowe film I would suggest to folks looking to get into the character on film. Okay, let's get into the main cast. Of course, it's James Garner playing Philip Marlowe. Amazingly, this is the first James Garner film I've covered on the podcast, but trust me, there will be plenty more in the future. I'm pretty positive I discovered Garner from his seminal TV character, Jim Rockford, on the TV series, The Rockford Files. I've already expressed my fondness of Tom Selleck and his work, and in many ways, the actor that most resembled Selleck a generation prior was indeed James Garner. While Rockford was my introduction on TV, for some, it was Maverick, like my dad who loved that TV show. Garner's most well-known films prior to Marlowe were Cash McCall with Natalie Wood, The Great Escape with Steve McQueen and Charles Bronson, The Thrill of It All and Move Over Darling, both with Doris Day, The Americanization of Emily with Julie Andrews, Grand Prix, and Support Your Local Sheriff. Garner is definitely the main star of this film, and I'm pretty sure he's in every single minute of this film. But the supporting cast is stellar. You have Rita Moreno, Carol O'Connor, Gail Honeycutt, Sharon Farrell, and Bruce Lee in his American film debut. Lee's few scenes are some of the most memorable in this particular film, as Ebert mentioned. The director, Paul Bogart. Now, Bogart began as a television director in the 1950s, directing shows and TV movies. Marlowe, for all intents and purposes, was his feature film debut. Bogart would go on to direct a majority of the episodes for the All in the Family series, along with four episodes of the first season of The Golden Girls. Okay, let's get into the making of the film. So, as Ebert mentioned, the Philip Marlowe character was created by author Raymond Chandler. This particular film was based on Chandler's 1949 novel, The Little Sister, and it was the fifth novel by Chandler for the Marlowe character. This was the first novel Chandler wrote after becoming a screenwriter in Hollywood. He was working for Paramount. Adaptation-wise, this is the third Marlowe movie that I've covered on the podcast, so check out The Lady in the Lake and Murder My Sweet if you're interested in the 1940s films. In 1969, there were only two Marlowe novels that had not been a film adaptation, The Little Sister and The Long Goodbye. The latter would be made in 1973 with Elliot Gould and was directed by Robert Altman, and I do own it, so I'll cover it within the next 40 years. Okay, let's get into the film. So it begins with Los Angeles private detective Philip Marlowe, of course, that's James Garner, looking for a man named Oren Quest. And this is where the late 60s era is really fun to see as we see a bunch of hippies hanging out in a dirty hotel without a care in the world. Marlowe flips through the guest register and does indeed find the name of Oren Quest. He also talks to one of the guests, Grant Hicks, played by Jackie Coogan, who said that Oren left 10 days prior. When Marlowe goes to check the register again, he notices one of the pages has been torn out, along with an ice pick sticking from the neck of the hotel manager. When Marlowe goes back to his office, which is next door to a cosmetology school, he finds Oren Quest's sister, Orpha May, played by Sharon Farrell, and she's waiting for him. Hi. Well? Hold it just a minute. Well? Well, what happened? I've been waiting here for hours and hours. All shadow, no substance. Not even a trace? <sighs> no satisfaction, no charge. Dr. Lagardi's office. I'd like to speak to the doc, please. May I say who's calling, please? Uh, just tell him it's about Mr. Clawson. Will you hold, please? Yes, I'll hold. No wonder you haven't found my brother. You've been working on other cases. That's me, just buried alive in success. You notice the luxurious appointments, the sexy secretary, the electronic devices. Right? I don't like you, Mr. Marlowe. The minute I walked into this grubby little office, I knew I should have never employed you. Well, there's your retainer, all $55. Now, some people would keep it, but I get just a little shaky running around with that much loose money in my pocket. Well, you didn't even really try to find Oren. Dr. Lagarde. Yeah, Doc? Doc, this morning when Mr. Haven Clawson tried to talk to you, he got cut off. Haven Clawson? 
afraid I don't know a Haven Closet. Unless it was your eyes, Pig. Who is this? Yeah, Hicks. Uh, Grant Hicks, a former tenant in Mr. Clausen's rooming house. I was, I was just checking out when he tried to call you. Uh, that was before somebody mistook him for an ice block. Yeah, I, I just thought you ought to know before somebody wanted to know why he tried to call you. Uh, Doc? Uh, Doc, don't get me wrong, this ain't no shakedown. I'm just a cat looking for a connection. You know. Please feel free to consult me. Anytime. Goodbye. My father used to smoke a pipe. Mama never let him smoke it in the house. Even the last two years after he had the stroke, he used to sit out on the porch with an empty pipe in his mouth. Mama didn't like that either. We owed a lot of money. We couldn't afford useless things like tobacco. Well, you put the 50 back in your bag and forget you ever met me. The town's full of detectives. vacation time looking for him and most of my money too and I've got to go back home Saturday oh I know something's happened to him I can feel him Mr. Marlowe look I found a boarding house he slept there 10 days ago now out here that's just last minute now you go home Miss Quest sooner or later he'll shuck his sandals and cut his hair 10 years from now you won't know him from anyone else in Manhattan Kansas Marlowe then gets a phone call from a desperate Grant Hicks who wants Marlowe to meet him at another hotel. Hicks wants to give Marlowe something to hold on to for a few days and will give Marlowe $100 for his trouble. When Marlowe arrives at Hicks's hotel, he's nowhere to be found, but a woman with her face covered by a scarf is and she pulls a gun on Marlowe. She pistol whips Marlowe when his back is turned and she flees. The hotel manager gets her license plate. Marlowe also finds the dead body of Grant Hicks. He, too, has an ice pick sticking from the back of his neck. Marlowe notices that Hicks is wearing a toupee. He peels it off his head and takes the tag, which has an address on it. He tapes the tag to a piece of paper and places it in an envelope, and then puts it in the mailbox to be mailed to himself. The police arrive to the crime scene, and were introduced to Lieutenant Christy French, played by Carol O'Connor. Whoever did this is a performer. Got the spinal cord first try. They developed the technique in Brooklyn. You don't say. Sunny Steelgrave's boys uh, specialized in it. You aren't trying to connect Steelgrave with this. That's pretty fragile, isn't it? Yeah. Well, anyway, he definitely wasn't the last of the big spenders. $14 and change, seven master keys. Maybe he's figuring to clean out the hotel. Well, Haiti, do any of these fit this dump? You're gonna lock our doors with your little finger. Uh, well, he knew somebody was after him. Probably getting close. So he calls Marlowe, offers him $100 to come over here and safe keep something for him. Is that your story, Marlowe? That's it. Yeah. Only he hasn't got $100 on him. But then maybe he was figuring on getting you to gamble along with him on something. Haiti, could the desk give us a rundown on any other possible visitors that might have come up here? You don't have to pass the desk to go in or out. I wonder he checked in here. That and the homey atmosphere. Well, all right. I guess that just about does it for the first run-through. Well, not quite. What do you know? While away must. Used to be a runner for Ace Devore. How you been, mile away? Gonna miss you at the morning lineup. Well, that takes the pressure off. This pump won't be a 24-hour day job. Uh, how'd you know about that tube? I'm a trained detective. That's your exit line, Marlowe. Follow it out. 
And uh, don't leave town, you hear me? Oh, go on, Hayden, you too. What's bugging you? 150. Don't get funny at the wrong place. When I searched him, he had $164 on him. Now there's only 14 left. So? So where were you while I was calling the lieutenant? You accusing me? Just checking for conscience. here she used these stairs she went by your room she would have been running you would have been following what makes you so wonderful i'm a trained detective all right i followed her and she got in the car how do i know this isn't some license number you already had just take my word for it describe the car jack convertible xke yellow describe the girl you want a lot for your bread don't you grant hicks's bread wide black felt hat with a black patent leather band Dark glasses. Black coat with black patent leather buttons and trimmings. White gloves. Height five, six, five, six and a half. Built like a model. Enjoy the day. Nice job by Marlowe on that one, as he knew the shady hotel manager picked the pockets of Hicks before the police got there. He got the info on the masked woman, and the manager kept his stolen cash. Marlowe receives the tag he sent to himself, and it's the address of a photo mat. For my young listeners, before phones and digital cameras, you actually had to have film developed by a developing service to see your photos. Marlowe, in a funny scene with two landline phones, the only types of phones people used in 1969, is talking to the photo mat clerk and a female friend who works at the DMV. Marlowe will act like Hicks to get his photos. And from his DMV friend, he finds out that the mystery woman is a famous actress named Mavis Wald, played by Gail Honeycutt. Morrow picks up the photos and finds they are of Mavis Wald, and she's kissing a man. When Marlowe goes to Mavis Wald's fancy apartment, he notices the same car of the masked woman who hit him at the hotel. When Marlowe goes up to Mavis's room, he instead meets her friend Dolores, played by Rita Moreno. Mavis Wald? Uh-uh. She's busy making panic calls. You really shook her. What's up? I'm the father of her triplets. Mm-hmm. Do you have a name? It wouldn't do anything for you. Sugar? Yeah, please. I'm Dolores. With an O. Dolores Gonzalez. Isn't that Spanish for pain? Mm. Well, you... You picked a nice place to suffer. And you jumped to nice conclusions, but it's Mavis's pad, not mine. Which makes you? Something you don't see every day, an old friend. My friend asked me to keep you occupied. Are you hard to occupy? It was hard to get as a haircut. Hey, has anybody ever told you that you have a sensuous underlip? Everybody mentions it. Do nice, fleshy, uncomplicated girls turn you on? I come all unglued. <laughs> Are you looking for something? I just don't want to see Mavis get hurt. Now, who are you? Its name is Philip Marlowe. It's Private Heat. Well, I hope you'll be very happy. Ciao. Philip Marlowe, what can I buy you with? Money helps. How much? Oh, say a hundred to start. A hundred dollars money to you. You make it two hundred and I'll retire. I work for my money. What am I buying? 
Well, I don't think you killed him. But it would help to have some reason for not telling the police you were there. My goodness. Am I supposed to have killed somebody? You're going to find this hard to believe, but I came up here with a quaint idea. You might need some help. I figured you went to the hotel room to make some sort of payoff. You went there alone and took a chance on being recognized. That made me think you might be in a king-sized jam. I said a king-sized jam, that's a cue. All right. You're good, Miss Wald. You're so good, you could act your way out of a safety deposit box. Good day. Marlowe leaves the apartment building and is immediately stopped by a group of unfriendly folks who want Marlowe to come along with them. Car. Beep, beep. Car. For a man with unlimited vocabulary, you do make your point. Car. Now they tell me there was a disturbance upstairs in Miss Wall's apartment. They tell you wrong. We were bobbing for apples. Where are the pictures? Who makes your ice picks these days, Mr. Steel Gray? Too bad. Does your mother know what you do for a living? that roughed up Marlowe worked for Sonny Steelgrave, played by H.M. Winant, and he's a mob boss. He wanted the pictures that Marlowe picked up that were filmed by Hicks, and this is why Marlowe always mails important clues to himself and never carries it on his person. Next, we get the most famous scene of the film, mainly because it involves an early role for Bruce Lee, who plays Winslow Wong, and Lee displays his famous martial arts skills. Just renovating, Chuck. Yes? Well, it's about time. Oh, come on, girls. Don't stand around looking back to work here. Please, quickly. Oh, dear, you never mind. I have to start and I'll do something. You won't need that. The word is you are a cool cat. Well, the word is wrong. I go all to pieces over nothing. You take that coat rack, for instance. Been in my family for years. How would you like it if your granny's coat rack was chopped up for kindling? Please, I have a nice little proposition. May I reach to my pocket? <laughs> it would give me great pleasure to see you do something foolish. <laughs> $500. For that, you can kick the ceiling in. 
It's yours. For what? You are not looking for anybody. You cannot find anybody. You do not have time to work for anybody. You have not heard a thing, nor seen a thing. And what do I do for an encore? Nothing. Keep on doing nothing for a reasonable length of time. I will come back and place five more like these on your desk, side by side. And for whom am I doing all this nothing? Winslow Wong. That is I. I like a man who uses good grammar. You impress me, Mr. Wong. Whom sent you? A man who would rather spill money and blood, but also a man who would not mind spilling blood if he has no other choice. You take this back to your leader, Mr. Wong. Tell him you met the last of a dying dynasty, king of the fools. Unassailably virtuous, invariably broke. Okay. quickly destroys Marlowe's office and then casually walks out. Lieutenant French then appears. And then Marlowe says that he has termites, which is why his office is in disarray. Lieutenant French informs Marlowe that uh, Hicks had Marlowe's card on him. Now look, it's an old movie trope, but all regular cops are suspicious of private investigators, even though the PIs are often working on the same team and usually ahead of the police. Marlowe asks French if maybe Sonny Steelgrave could be involved in the Ice Pick murders. French isn't sure, but tells Marlowe where he can find Steelgrave, at his nightclub. We also discover that Winslow Wong works for Steelgrave. Marlowe takes his DMV friend and girlfriend of sorts, Julie, played by Kareen Camacho, to the club. Marlowe. Oh, yes, Mr. Marlowe, your table's ready this way. <laughs> Tomorrow? What's this? Compliments of Mr. Steelgrave. Thank you. Friends in high places. Who is he? Looks rich. Oh, he is. Even his tax bracket is unlisted. It's impertinent. You might say Baroque. a late breakfast. I'll agree to that. Or am I penciled in for the 8 to 12 shift? I have a few trial balloons going up. No one shoots them down. I'll make a call. Mr. Marlowe, there's a phone call for you. Well, thank you. Did you tell anyone we were coming here? No. Well, next two of us. It's just a way to get you alone. I didn't come here for the Cherry Jubilee. Take care. I don't like going home by myself. Slow, you suckered me out here, you devil. Take the money, Marlowe. Not a chance. Any more messages? You can hardly refuse him this time. You watch me closely. Can you remember the alternatives, Mr. Marlowe? You're a paper tiger, Winslow. You can't do anything in your boss's restaurant. 
Mr. Marlowe, I have my instructions. Well, that's just exactly what I'm counting on, Winslow. Well, now, what are you going to do? Break another coat rack? Well, you're very impressive, Winslow, but I've seen dogs do better on television. Hey, you're light on your feet, Winslow. Are you just a little gay, huh? Winslow almost kicks Marlowe off the ledge of the high-rise club, but Marlowe hangs on a ledge as Winslow plummets to his demise. Marlowe returns to the club without saying a word, and just hand motion interprets to Steelgrave that Winslow took a plunge, never to be heard from again. The next morning, Orpha May visits Marlowe at his house to inform him that she found out where her brother is staying and that the gangsters are out to get him. Orpha May again pleads for Marlowe to help her, but he's not interested and she leaves. Of course, something in the back of his mind thinks that this is all connected in some way. Marlowe then visits Mavis Wald's agent named Cromwell, played by William Daniels, the voice of Kit in Knight Rider. He was also in Her Alibi, which I just covered with Tom Selleck. Anyway, he shows him the incriminating pictures of Mavis, who would ruin her reputation as the wholesome actress. Marlowe later visits Mavis on the set of her TV show to show her the pictures. You know, one of these days, Marlowe, I'm going to make the mistake that a man in my spot dreads above all other mistakes. I'm going to find myself doing business with somebody I should trust, and I'm going to be just too damn smart to trust him. I'm going to take this letter to Mr. Philip Marlowe. He'll give you his address. Dear Mr. Marlowe, this agency herewith employs you to investigate on behalf of one of its television personalities a certain matter, the particulars of which have been given to you verbally. Your fee is to be $100 a day, plus expenses, with a retainer of $500, sincerely, etc. My driver will take you back to the office. I'm just going to have to trust you, Marlowe. I hate making mistakes. extremes to attract clients, even collect rare photos. Would you like a drink? Oh, no, thank you. All right. So you know. Could happen to any red-blooded girl. Do you love him? You mean, will I give him up? Something like that. Well, I don't know that I can. Or that I want to. Anyway, what good would that do now? Who took the pictures? I don't know. All right, who's trying to blackmail you? I don't know. Look, Mr. Marlowe, could you be persuaded to give those negatives to me? Mr. Crowell hired me to decide what's in your best interest. 
I know what's in my best interest. Just tear that letter up and forget this job. Go away, Mr. Marlowe. You can't win them all. Did Steelgrave have Hicks killed? Oh, you remember Hicks. He was stressed out on the bed in the Alvarado Hotel. Sonny didn't even know there was a picture of us together. Not till you came to my place and I called him. Then that leaves the blackmailer. And whoever else is in it with him. You don't really think he's going to let you off the easy way, do you? You just can't take advice, can you? That's me in one ear and out the other. Right. Your lunch, Miss Walton. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming by. You know, Miss Walton. Excuse me. You could make life easier for all of us just by laying your cards on the table. Goodbye, Mr. Marlowe. I'll be around. Marlowe's next stop is Dr. Lagardi, played by Paul Stevens, the doctor that Orrin Quest is supposedly under the care of. Dr. Lagardi denies any knowledge of a patient by that name. Marlowe doesn't believe him, though. Marlowe explains that he believes Orrin Quest is a blackmailer who takes photos of stars in compromising situations. Marlowe is then offered a cigarette by the doctor, but it's been laced with a knockout drug. Marlowe wakes up later that night in the doctor's office, and nobody is around. However, he hears gunshots and finds Oren wounded and almost dead holding an ice pick. Oren dies soon after he attempts to stab Marlowe. Marlowe also finds Oren's camera in a very interesting photograph. Now, what is the photograph, you might ask? Well, you're going to just have to watch the final 30 minutes of the film and find out how this case plays out. Now, I've always been a huge fan of James Garner. I've mentioned that. And while his portrayal of the Phil Marlowe character is more rough around the edges than his beloved role as Jim Rockford in The Rockford Files, Garner does a good job channeling the early years of film noir based on the famous character. So check it out if you're into mysteries and detective films. Plus, you get to see, again, Bruce Lee in a very early role of his career, along with the gorgeous Rita Moreno dancing in a very skimpy outfit, which was, I would say, fairly risque for 1969 on film. All right, some fun facts. So this is one of only two movies that Bruce Lee did where he speaks with his own natural voice. Now, the other one is Enter the Dragon from 1973. This is also the only film in which Lee played a villain. James Garner was actually taking martial arts lessons from Bruce Lee. In the nightclub scene, Marlowe takes a sip of wine and smirking, judges it to be impertinent, even Baroque. These were the exact words which a character in Gore Vidal's Myra Breckenridge, which was published a year earlier, had used to describe Garner's butt in an excerpt of an obtuse film journal which appeared in the novel. Obviously an inside joke, and from Garner's smarmy delivery of what was otherwise a pointless remark, he was very much in on the gag. James Garner and Rita Moreno first met and became friends on this particular movie. She'd later have a reoccurring role on The Rockford Files. All right, you know I love old-time radio, so instead of a guess, why don't I play The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, which was a radio program which ran from 1948 to 1951, and mostly starred Gerald Moore as Philip Marlowe. So why don't I play this particular episode from December 26, 1948. Hope you enjoy that. Check out the film and any other Philip Marlowe movie, because... I find them all entertaining. And then I'll be back next week with yet another random movie from my DVD collection. When it started, a girl's wedding and New Year's Eve were only six hours away. And I didn't think the bride-to-be would make either one of them. But that was before I ran up against the slot machine operator, the escaped convict, and above all, the old acquaintance. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character as CBS presents... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. And now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Old Acquaintance. At six o'clock in the last evening of the year, I was sitting with my feet up on my office desk thinking of impossible New Year's resolutions and what the girl on my butcher's 1949 calendar would or would not be wearing. But at that pleasant point, there was a soft, almost apologetic knock on my office door. I said come in and saw a quiet man in quiet clothes who extended a quiet hand. He introduced himself as Paul Riker, a Beverly Hills insurance broker. But the tremor in his voice said, very worried client. 
which on New Year's Eve was something I could do without. Then, Mr. Marlowe, you've got to find Nancy Marshall for me. Just for a springboard, Mr. Riker, who is Nancy Marshall? Uh, she's my fiancée. Uh, we were to be married at my place in Beverly Hills tonight. On New Year's Eve? Uh, yes, you see, it was at a New Year's Eve party a year ago that we met for the first time. Oh, when did you last hear from her? Uh, two hours ago. She called and said that she was in terrible trouble, that, that nobody, especially the police, could help her, that, well, that the wedding was off. I see. You're sure it's not just a matter of your being left at the altar, huh? Uh, another man. Oh, no, no, I, I'm certain that's not it. Now, please, Mr. Marlowe, will you help me? Uh, Mr. Riker, to you, New Year's Eve means wedding bells, but to me, it's something else, specifically a cozy little apartment on Wilshire Boulevard where there's a very nice girl and a couple of chilled bottles of sham... Oh, what is it, Mr. Marlowe? Shh, what, what's shh, wrong? somebody outside, Riker. Get away from that door, oh. quick! Whoever threw those shots through the frosted glass in my office door wasn't interested in checking up on his marksmanship. Because by the time I got to my feet, he was taking the stairs to the street. When I got outside, I was just in time to see him pile into a pickup truck and roar off. And the best I could do was get a face full of exhaust fumes and the last three numbers on his license plate, which read 711. When I got back to Riker and the glass on my office floor, I found the potential groom whiter, shakier, and less quiet than at our first meeting. Marlowe, did you get him? Uh, do you know who it was? No, I don't. Now relax a minute, Riker, and think. Yes. Who could possibly object to you and Nancy getting married? But, but that's just it. There's nobody I know of, Mr. Marlowe, and I'm positive that the, the same is true of Nancy. All right, now tell me, where does Nancy live? In a villa at 1428 North Havenhurst Drive, number 12. Mm -hmm. But I, I've already been there, and she's gone. Were you inside? Uh, no, no, the door was locked. But, Mr. Marlowe, I, I thought you had specific plans for this evening. I do. But from the way things stack up right now, they've got a better chance of keeping than Nancy Marshall. Now, look, go back to your place in Beverly Hills, stay away from frosted glass windows, and wait till you hear from me. We're real lucky, Mr. Riker. It still might turn out to be a happy new year. When Riker left the office, I called Lieutenant Ibarra at police headquarters. And after being told that it would take at least a half hour to get my kind of lead out of the 7-Eleven I had on the pickup truck's license, I headed for Nancy's villa on North Havenhurst, where it took me ten minutes to outsmart the catch on the back door. Inside, except for a carelessly overturned box of old snapshots, which meant nothing to me, and a lot of half-open drawers and closets, I was no place. And in the kitchen, where there was a full cup of cold coffee next to an open newspaper, the setup was almost the same. But not quite. Because on the front page of the paper, there was a banner story complete with pictures that shouted the news of three men who had broken out of the state penitentiary that morning. And one of them, a man named Steve Doyle, had a face that I'd seen only minutes ago on one of the snapshots in the overturned box. I grabbed the paper and started back to check with the snapshot once again for good measure. But the second I stepped into the living room, I stopped. Hello. I don't believe I know you. Oh, the voice matched the lady perfectly. She was tall, beautiful brunette, about 30. Wearing a beige metallic wool jersey that covered more curves than a ride on a roller coaster. But the large monogrammed A on her purse meant that this was not the woman who had planned to marry Paul Riker. I said I don't believe I know you. The name is Arthur Murray. You're late for your rumble lesson. Oh, never mind. The joke's bright, boy. It's a waste of your time and mine. All right, then we'll play it very straight. Name is Philip Marlowe. I'm a private detective, and I'm working for a very worried man. Now you, what's your connection with Nancy Marshall? I'm just, shall we say, an old acquaintance? That's all. Not enough. I'll prime the pump some more. I was hired to find Nancy, who seems to be in a lot of trouble. And coincidentally in trouble on the same day that Steve Doyle breaks out of stir. Now once more, exactly where do you fit in? I don't think I'll tell you, Mr. Marlowe. If you don't mind. Well, I owe... Pearl-handled, huh? How very chic. But deadly. Now get in that closet there, Marlowe. Go on. All right, all right. But just so we don't go through this same routine when we meet again, and we will, who are you? Oh, you don't listen very carefully, Marlowe. I've already told you that I'm an old acquaintance. It's the season for them, remember? Now get in there and shut up. <laughs> Nancy Marshall's villa was post-war construction at its worst, closets included. So I didn't stay tucked away with the mothballs any longer than it takes to say old acquaintance. And the minute I'd kicked my way out, I went right for the telephone in my only 100% bona fide lead, the number 711. This is Lieutenant 
Lieutenant Ibarra. Malo Ibarra. Anything for me on that license number? Oh, yeah. If you're sure it was a pickup truck, the chances are pretty good that it either belongs to a party named Maurice J. Calder at 409 South Main or one Jerome Graff, 3221 and a half Melrose Avenue. Check. Uh, what's up, Phil? Anything I might be interested in? That depends. Ever hear of a guy named Steve Doyle? One of that gang that broke out this morning? The very same. Matter of fact, he's probably driving that pickup truck right now. Oh. But look, he borrowed it. I think I know what I'm doing, so how about letting me run this end of it until I get stuck? Well, There's a we... girl named Nancy Marshall mixed up in this, and a delay at this time might cost her her life. All right, I'll stay clear, Phil, for a while. Good. But just so you don't get too careless, remember, Doyle got out of jail this morning the hard way. He killed two guards. Oh, fine. Goodbye, Marlon. <laughs> At the 409 South Main, I knew that my first choice had to be wrong because Maurice J. Calder turned out to be a bankrupt junkman and his pickup truck, which was loaded with everything, including the kitchen sink, had three flat tires and hadn't moved in a week. So if the numerals 7-Eleven were going to live up to their reputation, Jerome Graff had to be my man. And that made the time to be careful now. Thirty-two twenty-one and a half Melrose was a tired cottage set back about 50 weed-covered feet from the sidewalk. And from the rusted sign, Jerry Graff, mechanic dangling at a crazy angle from a weather-beaten beam over the front door, I gathered that the place doubled as both Mr. Graff's living quarters and shop. I didn't see any truck out front, so I decided to try the alley in the rear before I knocked on any door. It was then that I noticed for the first time that I was being watched by a short man with a long face was slouched against a nearby tree like a marionette with no strings attached. If you're lost, mister, maybe I can help you. Maybe. I was looking for a pickup truck. Seen one around? A pickup truck? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Now, I wonder what that could be. Well, it's a small deal, about a half a ton, and... Oh, I get it. Okay, here. Here's five. Now my question. Jerry Graff owns a pickup truck, but it ain't here. It's been out since dark. But Jerry's in. He's working late tonight. Working at what? Come on, you got your five talk. Okay. It ain't no secret. Jerry's a nursemaid for one-armed bandits. Slot machines, huh? Is that his record? Yeah. He used to be a big boy with them, too. But times have changed. Now he just works on them for other guys. What other guys? Oh, mister, I wouldn't answer that for even another five. I wouldn't stay in business very long if I did. But I'll tell you one thing for free in case you're going to visit, Jerry. What's that? Watch out for him. He's a very nasty man. Thanks, but I can take care of myself, Buster. What do you want? Information. Where's your pickup truck, Graf? Somebody stole it, but he didn't leave his card. Why, what are you, a private dick? That's right, but one that works close to the law. So why don't we call the boys in blue and tell them all about it? The cops? No, wait a minute. I don't like the law pattern around here. Come on in, I'll tell you what you want to know. Let's not skip any of the details, huh? Like, for example, the name Steve Doyle. Doyle? Uh, I don't know. Well, okay, fella, you win. The story goes something like this. Want to try again? Uh, maybe a monkey wrench will convince you. You don't throw any straight in your talk, uh, Come on. Uh, what do you say? Do we play some uh, more? Come on, talk. Come on. Come on. Wait a minute. I'll talk. All right. I've had enough. So far, I know a girl named Nancy Marshall's in some kind of trouble because Steve Doyle broke out of the pen this morning. Now, you fill in the blanks. Oh, sure, sure. Why not? Oh, Steve Doyle, he used to be crazy about Nancy, but she didn't go for him. Then about a year ago, a little more maybe, Steve got picked up for knocking over a grocery store. He figured he was caught because Nancy tipped the law to get him out of her hair. Now he's out to get Nancy for revenge, is that yeah, it? Yeah, that's it. And anyone who's close to her gets the same treatment. Oh, chummy. Now tell me, was Doyle here? Is he the one who's driving a pickup truck? Yeah, but it wasn't my idea. He shoved a gun in my face, said we were old friends, and asked for the keys. You know where he is now? No, but if I did, I'd keep it to myself. Doyle's full of hate, brother. You can count on that. Now what do you say about clearing out of here? Just as soon as I find out one more thing. Now, there's another girl mixed up in this. She's a brunette with a lot of curves in the initial A. Calls herself an old acquaintance of Nancy's. Any idea who she no, is? No, not the slightest. You're a liar, Graf, and if I had time, I'd beat the truth no, out of you. No, you haven't, believe me, because if you don't hustle, mister, when you do catch up with Nancy Marshall, you're going to catch up with a corpse. Nothing more. Nothing more. 
When I got outside, two things stood out in my mind like a pair of cleats at Carnegie Hall. First, my client's fiance was not the most innocent dame in Greater Los Angeles. And second, I wasn't going to get any place until I could locate the old acquaintance. But then, just as I started for my car, the slouch who had sold me the dirty thumbnail sketch on Jerry Graff came running toward me. Hey, 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 mister. Did everything work out all right? I was called away on some other business, or I'd have been here waiting. Waiting for what? Well, you know, in my game, I now and again give a guy a little more dope than he bargained for, and in that case, I sometimes end up with a bonus, so to speak. Well, right now, we're about even. But if you can tell me anything about a beautiful brunette whose first name starts with an A, I'll give you a bonus that'll keep you in beer and pretzels from now until the 4th of July. A name that begins with an A? Yeah. Hey, she she visited with Graf this morning, maybe? Yeah, it's possible. Come on, think. Think hard. She's kind of tall, dresses like a million bucks. That's and... right. Now, what's her name? Here, look. $20 bill. Mm. Her name, what is it? It's, uh... uh... Yeah, yeah, I got it. Adrian Starr, 1312, Lookout Mountain Road. How do you know that? It was on the registration card in her car. I took a peek while she was... Trouble at Graf's. I'll take my 20. Goodbye. I beat it up the walk to Graf's, and when I got inside, I found exactly what I expected. Doubled up on the floor in the middle of a lot of oily machine parts and still holding his stomach with both hands was Jerome Graff, a very dead man. I started for a telephone to call Lieutenant Ibarra, but then I noticed something small and gold lying a few feet away from the body. When I picked it up, I saw it was an ornamental buckle, the kind that a lady might wear on a coat. So I decided to skip Lieutenant Ibarra for the time being and call my client instead. This is Marlowe, Riker. Oh, yes, Marlowe. What is it? Uh, what have you found out? Quite a bit. But first, I've got to know one thing. Does Nancy Marshall have a gold belt buckle? A gold belt buckle? Yeah. Why, why yes, she does on her black coat. But well, what about it, Marlowe? What does it mean? I'm not sure, Mr. Riker. But it may mean that Nancy Marshall just killed a man. In just a moment, we will return to the second act of The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. But first, by this time, a week from tonight, Jack Benny will have made his first broadcast exclusively on the CBS network. Starting next Sunday, you'll find Jack here with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, Don Wilson, and all the others who have made The Jack Benny Show a regular Sunday evening delight for millions of Americans. Just for fun, the Jack Benny kind of fun, Make a New Year's resolution to hear the Jack Benny Show every Sunday starting a week from tonight, January 2nd, over these same CBS network stations. And now with our star, Gerald Bohr, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Old Acquaintance. I told Paul Riker that the chances were good that his bride-to-be had just knocked off a slot machine operator. My client reacted like I'd kicked him in the stomach. When he caught his breath again, he started telling me I was wrong and didn't stop until I hung up on him. Next thing on the agenda was I called Lieutenant Ibarra. Hello again, Lieutenant. Oh, did you find the owner of that pickup truck, Phil? Yeah, I found him, Ibarra. I'm calling from his shop now. I had a talk with the guy. It was Jerry Graff. What do you mean, was Jerry Graff? Well, somebody came in here and shot him just after I left. He's dead. dead. He knew Steve Doyle all right, but I'm pretty sure Doyle didn't kill him, Ibarra. No, then who did? Any idea, Marlowe? Well, looks very much like my client's fiancée, Nancy Marshall. Uh-huh. I still don't know where she is or how it all fits together, but look, I got a lead on an old acquaintance of Nancy's named Adrian Starr. She lives up on Lookout Mountain Road. Now, if you don't hear from me in, say, an hour, you might check. Number 1312, that's my next stop. Okay, just be sure it's not your last stop. Goodbye. I drove up Laurel Canyon to Lookout Mountain. The only sign of life was a young couple parked where they could look down at the city lights, if they wanted to. 
I backed into a bushy driveway across Madrian Star's bungalow and stopped. It was small, modern, and looked deserted, except for one dim light upstairs. I was about to get out and verify that when a pair of headlights flashed down the road and a yellow convertible swept to a halt in front of the place. It was Adrian Starr who got out. She started up the walk toward her front door, stopped suddenly and then ran back to her car and drove off again. I kept the yellow convertible in sight. When it turned on Havenhurst and stopped in front of Nancy Marshall's villa, I pulled up in time to see Adrian step inside and close the door. So I followed her. Marlowe. What do you want? I want to know what Jerry Graff means to you, Adrian. I don't know any Jerry Graff, so it means nothing. Come on, stop it. You went down to his shop to see him this morning. I thought you might like to know that he's dead. Dead? Mm-hmm. And the cops are hungry for anybody who so much as knew his name. Maybe I better come inside and talk it over, don't you think? Yeah, maybe better. Just a minute. Thanks. Hey, it's dark. Why don't you turn on more lights? Because I like it this way. Okay. But, honey, if you've still got that pearl-handled popcorn of yours, let's leave it out of the conversation. And let's make it straight. Why'd you drop in on Graf this morning? Because I knew that sooner or later Steve Doyle would hit there. I had to know if Steve intended to leave town or was still determined to get his crazy revenge. And all for Nancy Marshall, huh? You know, you're sticking your neck out quite a ways just for old time's sake, baby. Steve Doyle's a pretty tricky guy to mix with at this point. You can say that again, folks. Steve! Oh, Steve. Steve Doyle. That's right. Who are you, mister? Marlowe, private detective. Sit down over there, private detective. Keep your hands out of your pockets. I don't like you because you're half cop, but play it smart and you won't get hurt. Well, Adrian, like hold home week, huh? Oh, it's been a long time, Steve. Yeah, yeah, it sure has. Where is she, Adrian? Where's Nancy? Uh, I don't know, Steve. You're lying to me. This is her place. You got in with a key. You've been down to see Graf. You know where she is, all right. So tell me and tell me fast. Oh, Steve, listen, forget it. Forget about Nancy. This revenge will only get you in the gas chamber. Please, let's get away. We can still make it across the border. Please take me with you. I love you, Steve, just like I always have, even when you threw me over for shut Nancy. Shut up, shut up. <laughs> just tell me where Nancy is. Come on, Adrian. <laughs> I don't know, Steve. Stop it, Doyle. Where is she? Steve, you're hurting me. Doyle, don't move, Marlowe. All right, fella, I told you to behave. I've been through a lot, and I'm tired, and I'm running out of time. You're getting in my hair, and that's bad. No. Oh, no, Steve, oh. don't. I won't shoot him. I can't afford the noise. Well, I can give him something just as good. Oh. Now, Adrian, try again. Where's Nancy? I don't know, Steve. Come on, where is she? I don't know. Where's Nancy? I don't know. Where's Nancy? I got the crazy idea that I was being robbed by a very unhappy crook because I was sure that somebody was crying and going through my pockets at the same time. Oh, I tried to open my eyes, but all I could see was a little gold buckle danced back and forth in front of me. When it finally disappeared altogether, I rolled over and hauled myself up onto my knees. And then it all came rushing back to me. I'd been in Nancy Marshall's villa with Steve Doyle and Adrian Starr. Only they were gone now, and I was alone. I heard a car start outside, so I got on my feet and made it along the wall to the door. It was Adrian, and she was behind the wheel of my coupe. Stay away from me, Marlowe. Where's Doyle? He took my car. He's gone off to Nancy. I've got to stop him, Marlowe, so get out of the way! Somehow I managed to jump back just in time to keep from getting a press job with the tread of my own fist tires. And it took ten minutes of steady concentration to get it through my throbbing head that Adrian had actually stolen my car and was gone. Oh, the cold air must have helped me because one thought led to another and I finally began to separate the facts from the fancies. I hadn't dreamed all I thought I had. And when I realized that, the whole idea hit me and hit me hard. I knew that I'd better get out to Lookout Mountain in a hurry. I made it to Sunset... Hailed a cab and collapsed in it. Where to, mister? Look out Mountain Road. Make it fast. Oh, it's rugged in this crap. Do your Z, you know. Here's ten bucks. Does that help? It's important. Oh, it helps plenty. 
I know, great shortcut. Uh, a new road that's not yet finished. But how are you on bumps? You more won't matter, pal. Let's go. When it was over, I felt like I'd crossed the country on a pogo stick. But the cab driver was a genius, and with a shortcut, we made the distance to Lookout Mountain less than ten minutes. When we got near the place, I sent the cab back down the hill out of danger. Went the rest of the way on foot. As I got within sight of Adrian's bungalow, I saw Steve Doyle getting out of the yellow convertible. He ran up to the house, tried the door, it was locked. Nancy, where are you? I know you're in there, baby. I'm going to find you about to take this joint apart. You've got some old business to settle, remember? So have we, Doyle. Uh, Drop that gun. Stand still. Okay, sucker. Shoot. You won't need that gun anymore, Doyle. Just kick it over there out of the way. Someday I'll get you for this fella. I doubt it, Steve. You're all finished, but you're too thick-headed to see it. Well, I guess it's time to relax and wait for Adrian. Then we call the cops, Adrian huh? Adrian just arrived, Marlowe. Don't what? turn around or I'll kill you. Adrian. There we are, Marlowe. Touch your gun back here to me. Come on now. It's better. Oh, Steve. Steve, are you hurt bad, darling? Can you make it to the car? I'll try, Adrian. <laughs> Got me on this side. It's bad. Oh, Steve. Hurry, darling. Hurry. I'll be with you in a minute. I'll make it okay. Well, Marlowe? Yeah. Okay, Adrian. Tell me one thing first, Marlowe. Did Steve get to Nancy? No. You killed Graf in time to shut him up, too, huh? So Steve will never know the truth, will he, Adrian? Could be it was you who crossed him and sent him to prison. You'll never find out. Not now. And you'll never realize how much I love him, either. That's why I did it, Marlowe. It was the only way I could hold him for myself. And I was willing to wait. Can you understand that? Yeah. I guess I can. Too bad a love like yours has to be wasted on a guy like Steve. You'll never get away, honey. Not with him. You'll never make it. Maybe not. But if he goes out, at least I'll be with him, Marlowe. And that's the way I want it. And if you're going to do anything, Adrian, you better get it over with fast. That siren's a friend of mine. He's coming here. Adrian! Coming, Steve. You're a good guy, Marlowe, and a smart one. Just don't follow us, that's all. So long, Marlowe. Happy New Year. Marlowe. Marlowe, lad, call it. Just pull out of here. Who was in it? Steve Doyle and Adrian Starry, Barra. That road makes a horseshoe turn. That'll bring them out down below us there at that junction. I've got one of those streets blocked, but the other one's wide open. Look, Ibarra, there they are. She's stopping at the crossroad. Yeah, they've spotted my men down there. She's turning around. They're heading out the other way. She must be crazy, Marlowe. They'll never make that curve at that speed. They're not slowing down, Ibarra. She's heading straight for that stone wall. <laughs> Speed. That's it. It's all over. They're both dead when the boys got to them. Killed instantly. By the way, how's your head feel now? Any better? I'm okay, Burr. You take care of Nancy Marshall all right? Yeah, she locked herself upstairs. Sent her home to Paul Reich on the squad car. The driver hurries. They can still be married on New Year's Eve. You had a peg to Jerry Graff's kill earlier tonight, Marla. What made you change your mind? Well, I found a gold buckle near Graff's body, Burr. I figured it was a fancy little belt buckle that Nancy had dropped. I saw exactly the same buckle when I was coming to after Doyle hit me on the head. And it wasn't on a belt, it was on a shoe. Adrian's shoe. It was the mate of the one I'd found. Once you know Adrian Starr killed Graf, you put the rest of it together, is that it? Uh-huh. See, for a price, Graf helped Adrian double-cross Steve. She had to kill him to keep him from talking. She hid Nancy out for the same reason. If she knew that if Steve ever got to Nancy, he'd learn the truth. I wonder why she didn't kill Nancy, too. I think she intended to, Ibarra. And she did it all, really, because she loved that guy too much. Strange deal, Marlowe, right to the end. You know, she didn't have a chance to make that curve down there the way she was driving. Not even if she wanted to make it, Ibarra. Yeah. Well, it's five minutes to midnight, Phil. Happy New Year, fella. I want to see a lot of you in 1949. Same to you, Lieutenant. Good night. (laughs) 
After Ibarra and the others left, I stayed up on Lookout Mountain and watched the new year come to Los Angeles. A new year. Didn't seem to change things much, at least on the surface. Somewhere down the road, a gang struck up old Lang Syne. I thought again of Adrian Starr, a girl who loved not wisely, who had called herself an old acquaintance. Yeah, I'd never forget her. As I walked back to my car, the city was ringing out the old and ringing in the new. And I wished then that someplace on everybody's list of resolutions, they'd make room for that cup of kindness they were singing about. And then a guy could say, Happy New Year, and mean it. Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, stars Gerald Moore, and is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Donnelly, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Gloria Blondell, Edgar Barrier, David Ellis, Lou Krugman, and Stan Waxman. Lieutenant Abaro was played by Jeff Corey. The special music was by Richard Arant. <laughs> Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... They all knew he was aboard the yacht when it exploded and sank. And everybody called his death an accident. Yeah, that is everybody except the corpse himself. He said it was murder. An hour of wonderful, delirious comedy is still to come to you tonight on CBS. You'll soon hear Hollywood's Eve Arden starring as the unusual schoolmistress, our Miss Brooks. Later, Lumet Abner will open the doors of the Jotham Down store in Pine Ridge, Arkansas, and let you stock up on the last from their never-failing supply of wisdom and good humor. Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden, is heard at 9.30, and Lumet Abner at 10 o'clock, both Eastern Standard Time, over most of these same CBS network stations. This is Roy Rowan speaking for CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. If you are ever in the San Francisco Bay Area and still love collecting or renting DVDs or VHS tapes, come check out Captain Video and San Mateo at 2837 South El Camino Real. Captain Video is open six days a week and closed on Wednesday, and one of the last traditional video stores still running in the United States. New movies you can rent for $2.99 a day. Old movies you can rent for $2.99 for five days. And if renting isn't your thing, you can also purchase anything you find in the store. Be sure to tell Ira that you heard about Captain Video from the Damn Good Movie Memories podcast. Happy renting and happy collecting at Captain Video. Come hang out and chill with Brian A. Davis and the Bad Beat. Wednesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern, right here on ThatMetalStation.com.